Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we come needing your word. And Lord, more than uh, needing to hear uh, my words, we need to hear your words. And so Jesus... I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit in speaking. You fill the rest of us with the Holy Spirit in listening. um, So that, just as Jesus talks about in Luke 14, 24, that we uh, might not miss out on the banquet that has been offered to us through the gospel. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to sit, to reflect, and to be challenged on the way in which your eternity shapes our daily lives. We pray that you're honored in this room today. In your name. Amen. So we've been working through the Gospel of Luke here at Sovereign Hope. And if you have a Bible or or an app, a phone with an app on it, I'd uh, encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, talk to me afterwards. We'd love to give you a Bible. The best way to listen to sermons here at Sovereign Hope is to have it open in front of you. And we are... uh, Contextually, in the same place we were last week, Jesus was invited to dinner uh, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and Jesus began a teaching with them that includes three parables. And today, we're looking at parables two and three, uh, and he's going to address in the first parable uh, the host himself, and then he's going to turn and invite or and speak to all the guests. And so we're going to sit today kind of in the host seat and in the guest seat. And both parables that Jesus gives can only be understood in light of eternity. If you've been with us through the book of Luke, almost all of Jesus' teaching can only be understood in light of eternity. And remember Luke, uh, who followed uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul later on in uh, Jesus' journey, or in the, the journeys of the church afterwards, he heard, and we see this in his writing, what stood out to him about Jesus' teaching was the way in which we cannot follow Jesus if we are not thinking often of the eternal realities of heaven and hell. Now, our secular world today goes to great lengths through distraction uh, to think about anything except this life. We don't want to think about what fulfillment looks like for anything beyond death. We live to be fulfilled in this day. Carpe diem, seize the day. And yet, unfortunately, this sort of secularism has actually invaded the church as well. We, you and me today inside the church, wrestle with the same sort of eternal amnesia. We forget about it. We don't think about it. Uh, My wife was preparing to go on a year-long missionary trip to Africa And she encountered a man who was a Christian who pulled her aside and warned her. And he said, don't be one of those who spend so much time looking up at the sky that you don't see where you're going. Now, his intent was to tell this bright young woman, don't waste your life thinking about these eternal ethereal things and be of no earthly good. But Jesus actually makes the exact opposite point of that at the dinner table in the home of the Pharisees. In no uncertain terms, both of these parables will go to show that it's those who most clearly understand the hope and the reward of eternity who are of most earthly good. Heaven's heroes are always of the most earthly good. And from the Pharisees' table, Jesus is going to teach us today about our table and about the Lord's table. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to have two points. We're going to see how eternity shapes our table. 
how eternity shapes the way we engage with one another through the lens of hospitality and so much more than that. But then secondly, we're gonna see how eternity shapes God's table. That is the idea that the Lord is coming back to gather his church, his faithful saved by faith in Jesus Christ at a feast and to put those who are not in faith in Jesus Christ to a place where they earn and experience the wages of their sin. And both of these parables revolve around who has been invited and therefore uh, we need to pay attention to that as well. And when we think about invitations, and hospitality, our world loves being hospitable. If you drive around Missoula, perhaps you've seen some cars with bumper stickers uh, that say, don't build bigger walls, build bigger tables. My wife and I and our kids were just at the farmer's market yesterday. uh, And if you went into that distinctly secular square and you stood up and you read Luke 14, 12 through 13, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, it would be met with head nods of affirmation, maybe even applause, maybe even the uh, cry that this is what the world is missing and is what is needed. But Jesus' teaching today in the book of Luke should make proponents of secular social ethics just as uncomfortable as it's going to make self-obsessed Christians today. And that's because culture's idea and motivation behind justice, behind hospitality, and behind equality all depend on a biblical view of eternity. There's no worldview that pushes us towards equality, towards generosity, towards mercy or justice, apart from a Christian worldview. And so the very things our culture is crying out for can only ultimately be answered in the doctrine of eternity that Jesus reveals in the gospel. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing in his first parable today, where he shows us how eternity shapes our tables. How eternity shapes our tables. Remember in this feast, we learned back in Luke 14, 3, we kind of get a guest list. There's Jesus and assumedly his 12 disciples. And then there's the ruler of the Pharisee, who's the host. There's Pharisees there. And then there's experts in the law. And this is important to know because this table was filled with movers and shakers, the powerful and the privileged of society. And it's in this context at this table that Jesus launches into this parable. And what the parable, which was just read for us, exposes is that our hearts are full of unrealized prejudices. His parable last week, when he warned about going and taking the head seat, only to be removed and put in the last seat, shows that our hearts tend to think of ourselves as more worthy than we ought. But today, if you look at the text, the first parable that we see in verses seven through 11, Jesus is warning about the ways in which you think other people groups are worthy of more honor and privilege than other people groups. And this is a big talking point in our world today, but this is not a religious problem. This is not a secular problem. This is a human problem, which again is only answered in a biblical worldview. In the garden, when God created Adam and Eve, he created male and female in beautiful, equal diversity. He created God and man as both distinct, but both in a beautiful harmony. The garden had a wonderful sense of diversity, but what did sin do? Sin weaponized our differences. You see, Satan came as a serpent into the garden, and what did he convince Adam and Eve? He said, see that big difference between you and God? See that big gap? That gap is dangerous. 
That difference is dangerous. If you want flourishing, if you want equality, you have to yourself be God. You have to be just like him. And this desire for sameness has crippled humanity ever since. Sin bends us to self. It bends us to sameness. And I just want to do a little social experiment here. Jesus is talking about our tables. And so let's take this, uh, looking at the echoes of sameness, which is part of the fall and part of sin. Let's just think about your tables. Think about the last time you had somebody over to your house for dinner. And I want you to think about when was the last time you had somebody over to your house who was of a different skin color or ethnicity. Now, we live in Missoula. We are all woefully handicapped in this area. But let's not forget, go to the farmer's market. If you're down there, there's nothing more diverse. There's no greater picture of diversity in Missoula than seeing the ethnicities that are here that we don't see daily. We live 15 minutes south of a reservation. But when was the last time you had somebody from a different race or ethnicity to your house? When was the last time you had somebody from a different income bracket? There's far more diversity even inside this room in that area, greater diversity in our city in that area. When was the last time you had somebody from a different income bracket to your house? And to answer that question differently, maybe when was the last time you had to play with somebody's schedules who didn't just work a nine to five job to come over to your house? That's typically corresponding to their income bracket the hours they have to work, how easy it is to get together. When was the last time you had somebody from a different stage in life over to your house for dinner? When maybe you're an empty nester and you had a young family over. Maybe you're a single person, you invited a family over to your apartment or vice versa. Sarah and I once had individuals who had an apartment and couldn't host well and they say, can we bring pizza to your house and hang out with your family? When was the last time you stretched even those social barriers to have people sit at your table? I heard that someone once said in our church that they never were invited over to dinner until they got married and then they started getting invited. Why? Well, because if you look at the bell curve of our church, there's a large top of the bell curve where the majority of us are married individuals and married people, just like single people and just like empty nesters, they drift towards sameness. Why do we do it? Well, Jesus tells us here in verse 12, doesn't he? You do it so that they invite you and in return you are repaid. Behind the idea of sameness, the reason why we pursue it, the reason why it is the easiest is because what's behind it is actually the principle of reciprocity, that we get back what we give. It is a safe, controlled space. We give with the intention of receiving. That's not hospitality for others. That's hoarding for oneself. But Jesus doesn't come and simply like guilt you. He's not like, all right, show me your dinner log. Who's come over to your house? Let's open your ring doorbell. Let's see who's coming in. But he actually holds out a motivation that fundamentally changes if you fail that test, like I do. If you fail that test, what does Jesus hold out to you? Well, he tells us how we should live. Verses 13 and 14, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so changing our perspective on sameness, Jesus says, invite the people who are naturally different. Invite the people who are naturally needy. 
Invite the people who are perhaps off-putting, where if you stood on the elevator, you would quickly realize you have nothing to discuss with them. And you might take out your phone and stare at it or be like, this is the longest two-floor elevator ride I've had in my life. But that's not where he ends, is it? He doesn't just say, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. He says, do it. Why? Did you notice that? Because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, our, this, the English translation here, we're looking at the ESV. That word just is just the generic term used in the New Testament elsewhere as righteousness. And so he's saying here that those righteous will be resurrected when Jesus comes back. And in that day, your repayment will not be from cousin Sal or from your rich neighbor or from your brother. Your repayment will be from God himself. That's greater than the richest friend or neighbor you could ever have. Our world is aware of our drift towards prejudice. Perhaps you've encountered that. There's almost this like prejudice-seeking hunt out there. It's like the purge of people's prejudice. And in a sense, Jesus is doing the same thing here too. But being the creator of the world, he knows how we can uncover and he knows how we can deal with this. The only way we can deal with these things safely that isn't either ignoring a problem or guilting us into change is to do what Jesus does which is to take the ideas of righteousness and eternity and beat our prejudice out of us like dust out of a rug. And that's what this doctrine does. And there's two wonderful points of application in this text. First, we see that the just or the righteous person has a distinct ethic. It changes the way they live. Now, I want to be clear here because we are not only drift towards sameness, but we drift towards legalism. Jesus doesn't say, He does not say that if you move towards the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be righteous. Instead, he assumes that the people who are already righteous are living in this way. The gospel inverts our bent towards sameness. We are not made righteous. We have no hope in the resurrection of the righteous because we worked to be like Jesus. We cannot look at that gap and say, well, the the greatest sin was us wanting to be like God, so we tried to do it, and now we failed, and say, okay, on account of that gap, now I need to work to be like God again. That's repeating the same mistake. We don't work to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't save us because we were like him. He saved us because we were not like him. In fact, when theologians talk about justification by faith alone, they use this wonderful term. If anyone wants to start like a dark rock Christian band, this is the the name I want to bequeath to you today. It's called alien righteousness. Isn't that great? Can't you just like hear some poorly written Christian lyrics to that song? But the idea of alien righteousness is so helpful when we talk about sameness because the word alien, even in our ears today, we think about extraterrestrial. We think about so drastically different from, nothing could be more opposite sameness than something which is alien. But that's Jesus's righteousness. That's how faith works. The righteousness that you need is not yours. It is alien. It is found only in Jesus Christ. But when we put our faith in him, we don't get what is like us. We get what is drastically different from us. And that's how the gospel changes us. We're saved because Jesus did not go to those who were like him. In fact, in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus left those that were like him. He set aside equality in triune perfection to pursue 
those who were foreign from him. We're saved because he makes us righteous like he is righteous, not like we are righteous. And that experience of salvation then pushes us to be as self-giving and as missional as Jesus was, not simply because he is our example, but through faith we are given the Holy Spirit as an empowering ability to do that. John Ruskin was a renowned art critic in 19th century Europe, and he once found a young artist who he said, if she would devote herself fully to her work, this was his quote, he said, she would be the greatest living painter and do things that would be immortal. The greatest living painter doing immortal things if only she would dedicate herself to her craft. However, this woman, a young 24-year-old named Lilius Trotter, turned down Ruskin's advice. She said this, she said, I see as clear as daylight now Then I cannot give myself to painting the way Ruskin means and continue to seek first the kingdom of God. Instead, while painting on the side, Lilius spent her nights in London wandering the streets caring for women who were probably of a specific profession. She spent the last 40 years of her life walking away from the artistic community in London to be a missionary to the Arab world in North Africa specifically caring for the malnourished, the neglected, and the sick. She said of her ministry and the way the gospel shapes her message, she said, God wants to show us that nothing is great or small to him. God wants to show us that nothing is great or small to him. God is not in awe by the fanciness of your friends, but neither is he apathetic towards the least and the hurting in the world. If that is how our Lord sees things, then it is how his righteous saints should see things. The gospel changes our ethic. There is no such thing as the social gospel where we are saved because of what we do socially, but the gospel is social. It changes how we interact with one another. It gives us eyes to see what the world ignores. It shows us how Jesus saves us and how the Holy Spirit empowers us to live. But there's a second application here. And that is that there is hope and reward in the resurrection of the righteous. There's not only a change in our ethics, but there's a reward for it. There's a hope in it. If you take an intro to philosophy class, you'll realize there's this age-old debate when it comes to ethics and how we live. And that, that, that debate is the question, what makes an act good? And so there's one camp that says, well, what makes an act good is the merit of the act itself. Meaning, If the act does good and is rooted in a good obligation, then you've done something good. And then there's another camp that says, well, what makes an act good is if you benefit from it and if society benefits from it. And so one is rooted in the idea and one is rooted in the experience. And this debate presents a challenge to secular minds because to take the first camp that says we only do good as it relates to something objective means, one, you have to have something objective. But then it removes as any possibility for living the motivation of joy. It says you just do it because it's good. But then to go on the flip side, to say, well, no, we only do something when it feels good to us or it does some good, we have to say, well, what's the measure of good? Is it good for me or good for that person? And then more importantly, does that mean that there's no act of true benevolence? 
that whenever we go serve somebody, it's actually just this self-serving act that I do this not because I care about you, but I do it because I care about me. And this is why the Christian worldview is the best of all possible worldviews. It solves both of these because it gives us an objective sense of good that is rooted in the character and nature of God himself. There is truth outside of us, and it is in God, and we live in light of who he is. But then we live out those objective oughts, those obligations of life, because it is the most experientially rewarding way of life. It's costly to live in a way that breaks the barriers of sameness. It feels awkward. But sometimes, even in this world, we will find that it is the life of greatest joy here. One of my favorite relationships that I ever saw in this church, I don't like it when people move away, but I'm so happy these guys did because I get to use this as an illustration. There is this beautiful friendship that formed between an Asian American man who had uh, an undergrad, a master's, and a PhD, all from three different Ivy League schools who worked in international politics. And he became dear friends with this white, steampunk, goggle-wearing, top-hat-touting, leather-clad auto mechanic. And you would see them around town just sitting at a table together. (laughs) Nothing does that like the gospel. And you know how they were brought together? They were in the same community group. They sat at the same table. They had nothing in common, but they had Christ in common. And friendship flourished. But sometimes, moving towards others, caring for the neglected in the church, the neglected in your neighborhood, is just costly. It feels like a grind. But remember that our reward is not from the applause of man or their ability to repay. Our reward will be in heaven when God who sees what is done in secret rewards you. The gospel wants to right now, today, Jesus wants to, sitting at table with him, he wants to challenge your hidden prejudice and call you to a greater reward. I need help with this. You need help with this. And remember, Jesus isn't calling us here. Pay attention to the text. He's not asking you to cure poverty. He's not asking you to cure sickness or to solve inequality. He's just asking you to have an open table. For those who are close enough to be invited in to your life, to see the love and mercy of Jesus flowing through your hands. What would the experience of someone in our church be like if this sort of other-oriented ethic just shaped who you talked to after service, who you prioritized, who you said, I see you in another place. This is a place where I can meet people who are not the same as me. What might your neighborhood or your workplace see about Jesus when they observe the way you interact with others? Or something that's even more challenging, how you speak about others. Because Jesus says there is a greater witness and a greater reward in this life. And the idea of the reward that Jesus gives here, this feast in heaven, is so weighty that it leads someone in the crowd to offer up a poorly timed, contextually deaf comment in verse 15, right? One at the table reclined with him. He heard him say these things, that is that very parable. And he said to him, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Have you guys heard the joke about why North Dakotans can't tell jokes, timing? You'll get, you'll get it later. This is that timing. <laughs> See, I love how Luke includes these moments here because 
To my count, this is the fifth time where Luke has chosen to highlight these just completely tone-deaf comments and bring them and preserve them through the power of the Holy Spirit for us today. And I think it's good news because he intends to show us that even our dumb thoughts are part of God's grace to change us. We can look at this and we could say, I've said some dumb things and Jesus' grace is bigger. Because here Jesus just challenged the futility of selfish sameness. He says, if you want a bigger reward, don't go to those who are like you. Don't go to those who can repay you. Go to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And one guy who sits amongst a group of similar elitists, probably sipping on some fancy wine that has tannins in it. And uh, it's the only wine word I know. And, and probably who has never touched a poor person in his life. He hears this and he's like, can't wait, Jesus. Can't wait for that feast. And Jesus is like, what in the world have you been listening to? You see, this man, ironically, assumed an invitation because he thought he was worthy. That's the exact inverse of exactly what Jesus was doing in that parable. And so what Jesus does is he's going to begin to shift this here. And now he's going to turn this over and he's going to talk about the invitation to God's table. And this is where he moves from talking about our Tuesday night dinner to the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Christ brings home his church. And here we see how eternity shapes God's table. How eternity shapes God's table. And the parable that we read in verses 12 through 24 is actually very simple. A man gave a banquet and he invited many. But when the banquet was ready, none of those whom he had invited could bother to come. And so the host sent out to those who weren't initially invited and he filled his banquet hall with the very people the Pharisees just neglected. Did you see that? Those who were invited were the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And Jesus here exposing the Jews' unwillingness to see him as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And this parable is highlighting that point. He says to the man, he's like, you think you'll be there? You think you'll be at this feast? Well, you'd better be careful because you've been invited. The feast is ready, but you're not coming. The invitation has gone out and you are sitting here judging the merit of the one giving the feast instead of flocking to the feast. You're not responding to the invitation. Jesus just warned us of our heart's desire to only invite those who are worthy. And then Jesus shows from his experience, he's like, the worthy won't come anyway. They're not gonna come. They're too arrogant. And this shapes, this is meant to be a rebuke of the Pharisees that are sitting there right now. And there's four points I want to examine here because there's a stunning reality and that is that these rich men all responded to sit at the table when the ruler of the Pharisee invited them to come to his feast. But here is Jesus Christ inviting them to his table and no one's coming. And so what do we learn here in this parable? We're gonna work through it. We're gonna see four quick things. We're gonna see first that the feast is ready. Second, that the world is waiting. This will all be on the screen, so don't panic. Third is that the Lord is willing. And lastly, that the servants are working. The feast is ready, the world is waiting, the Lord is willing, and the servants are working. First, we see the feast is ready. Jesus says in verse 16, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to those who had been invited saying, come for everything now is ready. Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And listen here as it relates to the context of these Jews not coming to the invitation. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. 
I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So who are these brothers that he's wishing to be cut off for? They are the Israelites, the Jews. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, that is Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that in the Old Testament, God invited the Jews. They received a promise through Abraham, through faith, that if they followed God, if they stayed near to him, if they kept his commands after he redeemed them out of slavery, that he would give them the kingdom feast they always wanted. The message of the Old Testament is, the feast is coming. Be ready. But now do you remember how John the Baptist was introduced in the beginning of the book of Luke? to be this prophet. And and what did we read of in Luke chapter one? He says this, he, that's John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him. And so that him is not John the Baptist, that him is Christ. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God promised a banquet. John the Baptist came and he said, be prepared. The banquet is coming. And when Christ came and onto the scene, what is his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said, come to the banquet. You see, in Jesus and only in Jesus does God say to anyone, come, for everything is now ready. It's Jesus who says, let the little children come to me. It's Jesus who says, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus who says to me, if anyone is thirsty, come and let him drink. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. Despite Jesus's constant efforts, these Jews didn't come. And this is important because it calls us to consider where we see Jesus and how we see Jesus in the context of Christianity. Where does God prove the readiness, the completion, the sufficiency of himself? God cannot prove his love for you any more than he did when he sent Jesus. God cannot prove the danger of sin any more than he can when it put Jesus on the cross. God cannot prove the power of salvation more than he did when after bearing the sin of the whole world and being in the grave for three days, by the glory of God the Father, he raised Jesus from the dead. God cannot prove the hope and certainty of a future banquet more than he did when that same Jesus crucified and resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we'll say in a little bit, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus ascended, his last words were, I'm coming back. Be ready. If you're looking at Christianity and you're skeptical and you're wrestling these things out, there is no greater apologetic for the Christian faith than Jesus Christ. It's only because of him that the Father can say, everything is now ready. 
come to him. To come to God, to come to Christianity is to come to Jesus and realize that through him, we have access to this feast. And for the Christians that are in here, this whole parable is not actually given to the outsiders. It's given to the self-righteous insiders. It's given most likely to you to be reminded of the ways in which you functionally deny the sufficiency and readiness of Jesus, where you prioritize things that are not him. And this is what we see in the second point here, where we see the world is waiting. He gives us an example of these three men with three different excuses. And when the dawning of the great banquet was declared ready, there were many who were too captivated by the same world that was already there the same world that had been waiting this whole time. C.S. Lewis once said that it's only biblical Christianity that is truly progressive in any sort because it's only biblical Christianity that goes forward. Everything else goes back. Everything else reverts to what has always been there, trying to get hope out of what has proved to be hopeless for the history of humanity. And the thing that caused these men to turn back wasn't even exciting things. Did you notice that? The first two had absolutely miserable excuses. One of my greatest joys of being a parent of four is going to eat out or going to someone else's house. I shouldn't say that because it makes me sound like a really bad guest. You should have us over and maybe I'll help clean. But generally speaking, I like going out because I don't have to clean up the mess. You just let the kids hurricane all over the Red Robin booth, RIP, and then you go home. And what do these men do? Just like, the feast is ready, come on in. And these guys are like, no, I'd rather work. You see that? That's what they said. This one guy's like, I just bought some land, bruh. I'm going to go look at it. I'm going to get my seeds out. I'm going to do some tilling. It's going to be good. The other guy's like, I bought five head of oxen. We're going to open those suckers up. We're going to see how fast those things go. I'm not coming to your feast. But how often are we distracted from the invitation of Jesus because just like the hosts in the first parable, we think only in terms of rewards in this world. And very few things are as rewarding as what we earn from our work. At my community group, one of the guys was sharing about how in the workplace, he's seeing men throw their family on the altar of career. And he didn't come and say, look at these fools. He came and he said, keep me from being that fool. I see the pole. I see the pole of the field. I see the stunning speed of the oxen. And he he embodied what Jesus has been saying. Strive for the narrow door. Because the world is striving after you. It doesn't have much to offer, but we're desperate for it. These men turn back for the promise of work. One guy has perhaps a legitimate excuse. He says, we see it here. He says, I can't come. I've got a wife. This might sound like a joke, but it's not. He's actually holding up a really high view. In fact, a biblical view of marriage. Did you know that for the Jews, and we read this in Deuteronomy, that when uh, someone who's in the military gets married, they would be discharged for a year to just get to go and be married with their spouse. And then they were to rejoin the army. We have some high schoolers in here. Uh, I too was one of you once. And I remember very vividly thinking, yeah, I want the Lord to come back, but there's some things I'd like to have happen first. I'd like to get married There's some work I'd like to do in that area to the glory of God. If we could just delay that, things would be great. And how easy is it? Whether it's marriage, kids, mountain peaks, investment opportunities, Disneyland trips, to say, yeah, eternity is good. The feast sounds great. 
I've got some other things I'd like to do first. We take good things and we make them the crowning joy of our life. But it's the same world that's always been there. Nothing's new except for the invitation and the feast at the end of it. We become so consumed in living for a field on which to build our house or an ox to fund our vacations or a spouse to satisfy our needs for family or intimacy that we do not realize in the meantime the slew of excuses we leave behind us. I was listening to uh, a social critic named Neil Postman who wrote in the Reagan era. And in a prophetic way, he said, they got past 1984 and Orwell's uh, prediction of this dystopia that would happen and they made it. And everyone's like, we missed Orwell's thing. And Orwell said that we'd all be enslaved to pain enforced upon us by some totalitarian government. He said, it wasn't Orwell who was right. It was uh, Huxley in his book, Brave New World where instead of saying that we'll be held captive by pain, Huxley says you're going to be held captive by pleasure. You're constantly going to be looking and driven by pleasure and never going to be satisfied. C.S. Lewis speaks about this from the opposite direction. He brilliantly describes this problem in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, when he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, oxen and fields, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is, being, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. There is a feast where everything you hoped for, all the promises you're dreaming of, are finally and fully true, only in the kingdom of God. Don't miss the one invitation that gets you there. In the meantime, buy your field, prepare your oxen, love your spouse, dream for your family. But those who leave those behind lack nothing. You leave nothing behind. This is the compelling call. Those are good, God-given gifts that we should cherish, but we should cherish in submission to living for this kingdom feast. But these men did not value it. They turned back to the waiting world and notice what happens next in verses 21 through 24. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And so here we see that the Lord is willing. And what is the will and the desire of the host? To fill his house with guests, to have this feast and invite many to sit at the table. And this is not the first time in the book of Luke where Jesus has used a feast illustration as a metaphor for the end times. And so what stands on the outside of the feast is not this bummer of missing out. It's not sitting at home with your hungry man microwave dinner. What's outside this feast is the flames of hell, eternal damnation, the wrath of God on account of your sins. But the host's desire to invite in this text exists because of the God's desire to save in Scripture. The gospel exists to display not merely God's justice in condemning the unrighteous, but his overwhelming passion to redeem. One theologian said, God never used his justice to crush men until he used his kindness to allure them. 
God never used his justice to crush men till he used his kindness to allure them. And that's what we see happening in this text. He sends out his servants, the master does, to the streets and the lanes to get who? To get the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those whom the Pharisees neglected. Those who by nature didn't deserve it. And you see, the Jews, even though in this uh, parable, they're the ones who have been invited. They have eternal amnesia. They forgot that they were invited by undeserved grace. They didn't deserve God's promise. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, God says, I didn't choose you because you were the best and the brightest. I didn't choose you because you were more numerous than any people. It says, the Lord chose to love you for you were the fewest of all people. And they forgot that. And we, just like Israel, misremember our own pasts and we forget the grace of God in election. And Paul tells us in Romans that it's because of Israel's arrogance. It's because of their entitled attitude, their refusal to come, that God's plan to bring the gospel to the nations was finally carried out. These servants who went out, went out to do what God wanted to do all the time, the whole time, from day one. And that was to bring in the lost, the broken, the crippled from every nation to the feast of God. He grabbed all he could. These servants, did you see it? They brought all they could. And what did he say? Here's some of those beautiful words you'll read in scripture. Verse 22, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. Friends, multitudes on multitudes. We just came a couple weeks ago. The person in the crowd asked, will those who are saved be few? Here, Jesus didn't answer it there, but he's answering it, isn't he? Multitudes will come to faith at the message of Jesus Christ. Disgraced sinners, deformed sufferers, blind beggars, sexual idolaters, self-righteous hypocrites, and more will come to the feast at the table by faith in Jesus Christ. But there will be room for you if you come. You can exhaust the praise of this world. You can empty her pantry. Those are limited places of flourishing. But here is a house whose provision and whose table is as endless as its host, eternal and infinite. And this is the God who desires to save because he delights to do it. The Lord's table is just as large as his desire. None who come to him will lack a seat. And that's good news for those who are saved by faith, isn't it? but it's good news for those who aren't yet too, isn't it? Now it's interesting because here we see some, some bad news. Some bad news that we as evangelists need to get into our head. A lot of people didn't respond. A lot of people never came. But what do we see here too? More people than we expect did come. The gospel will save people, even people you never thought possible. And how does God do that? Well, this is our final point today under this. We see that God sends his servants. His servants are working. The host prepared a table. The host bought the price of the entrance. The host slaughtered the lamb. But who has the host sent out? Servants. Brothers and sisters, we are to take up the call of going to the lost and to the nations, of hitting the streets and the lanes, of going to the highways and the hedges to call others to come to this feast. And there are three verbs that Jesus gives to the servants in this text, which shape us in our quest for evangelism. And those three verbs are, he calls them to go, he calls them to bring, and he calls them to compel. Go, bring, compel. You want to know what biblical evangelism looks like? Go, bring, and compel. He says you're to go. 
Go to the highways and the hedges. Go to the hills and the Himalayas. Go to the boardrooms and the soup kitchens. Go, get up today. Many of us are waiting for evangelistic opportunities. And that's good. Be looking, but be going. Get out there. Share the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Go and bring them. We're to go out into the world, but we're not called to stay there. We're called to live there, but we're not called to belong there. We're to bring them back with us. And oftentimes, there, I see many people who are willing to go, but never willing to come back. They embody the attitudes of the men in the first parable, where they go out in the world and like, this field's pretty cool. These oxen are pretty strong. They become distracted. They buy into the lie that this world is what satisfies them, and they miss out. But we go into the world, and we bring them back with the message of Jesus Christ. We bring them back by calling them to belong to God's people in the church. We bring them back by showing them what love looks like in your community group. We bring them back to show them how to read God's word in your Bible study. We bring them back by sharing with them the good news of what they're invited to. They are invited to the feast of heaven. They're invited to sit at the table of God where because of the more distinguished host we looked at last week, where the person who sits in the last chair is bound to the father by the one who sits in the head chair. We bring them out of sin and out of shame and out of brokenness. And that's why Jesus used the last word here. We go, we bring, and we compel. The message of Christianity is a compelling message. We're called to snatch souls, but we're not called to snatch bodies. We don't just grab people and wrestle them here. We woo them with the beauty of the gospel. We warn them of the dangers of hell. We speak into the realities which are true because God says it is. And we say, wouldn't it be great if the longing of your heart and the fears of your conscience were explained to you? That you are separated from God and that everything you fear We see this when Jesus talks about anxiety. Everything you fear is too small. (laughs) Your problem is bigger than your greatest anxiety or depression can tell you. But guess what? A host has come. He has died for your sins. He has taken the punishment of what you deserve so that you might have grace through him by faith. Church, we must be a going, a bringing, and a compelling church. And we, as a church, need to grow in this. We do. We need to grow at one because as the guy who's the person who talks most up here, this is one of my weaker areas. And we need to grow in this. And by God's grace, I just heard last week that there was a group of friends who were out one night and they just started sharing the gospel with a Catholic they met at the place that they were eating. How good is that? I hear those stories happen more and they need to happen even more. Why? Because we're going, we're bringing, and we're compelling as I, we've been working through the book of Luke, it's been terrifying for me. Have you guys ever ridden on a roller coaster? If not, this probably won't land. Um, but, but there's this point where you're like going up the thing and, it's like, and, and what's happening in your stomach, there's this anxiety building. And you get to this point at the top where you coast for a second and then everything goes. If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe that Jesus' desire to save is just as great as his table. If we really believe that the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, those in the highways and the hedges and the streets and the lanes will find grace at this table, then at some point the coaster's gonna drop and it's gonna take us places 
that we never expected. The gospel of grace will press you in your comfort zones and it will do wonderful things. And we hang on for dear life. (laughs) And we say, whatever you will, Lord, let's do it. The anxiety of the climb is worth it for the thrill of the ride. Eternity, by grace through faith in Jesus, changes everything. So let's go. Let's open up our tables just as much as we open up God's word. Let's share our homes as we share our faith. Let's not be the ones who refuse the invitation, the ones who go out with the invitation on their tongue, hope in their heart, and the gospel on their feet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your righteousness change the way we live. We ask you give us hands to serve, eyes to see, mouths to speak. I pray that our homes look different even today, this week. And Lord, I pray that our our vocation, our primary vocation this week, whether we go and we work in a hospital or whether we work in a nursing home or in a school or at a restaurant, that we see our primary vocation as being servants inviting others to the feast prepared by Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.